You know, this Evergrande story has not gone away. It really reminds me of one of these slow motion crises. I was listening to an interview, was it Louis Gave? who was uh, saying, I've never heard of anything like a slow-motion crisis. All the crises I've experienced are fast. And, you know, I don't know. Like, if you look at COVID last year, that sure seemed like a slow-motion three months. I remember in February of 2020, I was going to the grocery store and I, I was loading up. My girlfriend thought I was crazy. I was loading up. I was canceling trips. And that sure seemed like a slow motion crisis to me. And, you know, I was watching this YouTube video and you have to be careful about what you watch on YouTube. And it was just some guy, but it was kind of, you know, what I'd call like an alternative news platform. It was just like some guy, you know, one of these for people that watch a lot of economics videos. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that do that, that probably listen to this show. It's a really interesting one. And... It was talking about the size of China's property market being something like $60 trillion and how actually the U.S. real estate market was much, much smaller in 2008, 2009. And it did get me thinking because one of the ways we've been able to kind of, you know, contain this narrative is by looking at the size of the default, that it's only $300 billion, as much as that is, as we've said on previous episodes, that is still quite small when we consider it relatively, and it's still half of Lehman, and it's 15 years later in the era of $2 trillion, $3 trillion budgets and stimulus bills and infrastructure bills, you know, with $120 billion of bonds, you know, being bought by the Fed on a monthly basis. So what is $300 billion? But then it got me thinking, this video, maybe it's not about the size of the default so much. The default matters because that's what creates the chain reaction. Maybe it's not so much the size of the default that matters, the fact that, but the fact that there's a chain reaction at all. Because once this thing gets moving, it's sort of like a butterfly on the other side of the world batting its wings. And before you know it, there's a hurricane in Florida, like this sort of you know, chaos theory, or they probably call it complexity theory now. And, uh, you know, so it, it just got me thinking, you know, maybe we're wrong to overly focus on the amount that's being defaulted. I mean, I'm looking at, I just did a search, China contagion. And yeah, as of like a couple hours ago here, they have defaulted, according to Reuters, Evergrande misses third round of coupon payments intensifying contagion fears. And it says here, some bondholders said they did not receive coupon payments totaling $148 million on Evergrande's April 2022, April 2023, and April 2024 notes due by 4 o'clock GMT on Tuesday, following two other payments it missed in September. And I believe I saw this was the first payment in dollar terms that had been defaulted on. Here it is. So Bloomberg... Shock default in China has investors eyeing repayment dates. It says here China's property industry has suffered its first default on a dollar bond since China Evergrande Group sank deeper into crisis in recent weeks, fueling investor concerns over other highly leveraged borrowers and about global contagion. 
And just a little bit more on this, Fantasia Holding Group, which develops high-end apartments and urban renewal projects, failed to repay a $205.7 million bond that came due Monday. That prompted a flurry of rating downgrades late Tuesday to levels signifying default. Creditors are now scanning debt repayment calendars as they try to suss out where the next flashpoints across the increasingly strained property industry may be. Nearly a dozen firms have debt maturing through early 2022. Coming tests include a $229 million note by Jing Wan Real Estate, which is due on October 15th, and Central China's Real Estate Limited's $400 million bond due November 8th. So, you know, as they say, they talk about the snowflake that creates the avalanche. Again, maybe it's wrong to overly focus on the size. You know, maybe the important thing to walk away with here is that there is a default going on and a significant one. And that's kind of all you need to know, maybe. So we are looking at markets. Dow futures down 195. Let's look at the bond. 10-year bond at 1.605. So the U.S. 10-year continues to increase in yield. And you know what's interesting about that? Usually when we have a crisis coming, usually the 10-year bond falls. Isn't that right? Because people are moving towards the safety of bonds. Instead, we have a 10-year bond that's going up. So, you know, we're just trying to work this out. Quick look at gold, $1,761. Steady below 1800 bucks there. Copper at 430 and Bitcoin at 57450 Finally, we look at CNBC. Evergrande plans to roll out electric cars in 2022 sending shares of its auto unit 6% higher. So they continue to move forward. Maybe this is just a tempest in a teapot. And meanwhile, we have an energy crisis in China and Europe and on and on it goes. Today, we have a very interesting episode. We have Katja Freitag, Managing Director of Mining Intelligence. And you should know, Mining Intelligence is owned by Glacier Media, which also owns the Northern Miner. Nobody asked me to do this, but I thought, again, I've been with the Northern Miner near 10 years now, since 2012, and I've kind of had a vague idea of what mining intelligence does, but, you know, as long as I've been here, I didn't really have a clear clue as to what they do. And they have pretty significant clients, including the USGS and, believe it or not, the CIA, but I am not surprised by that. As I call it, the geopolitics of mining is a very real thing. And it's only recently that we kind of don't think about natural resources as major geopolitical elements. And obviously, we still do in some respect. But, you know, we've kind of had the last 30 years, uh, this idea that we just have endless resources here, and that we can always get some more somewhere. Anyway, so we have Katja Freitag, Managing Director of Mining Intelligence. And as they say, data is the new oil. So we are going to see what they are up to at Mining Intelligence. This is from the Global Mining Symposium. Northern Miner publisher Anthony Vaccaro interviews Katya and just asks her about what kind of data they provide, how they help organizations, and who they help. So I thought that would be a pretty interesting little segment. So we are looking at that. Otherwise, things stay steady. I mean, final note on the markets. I was listening to uh, the Financial Sense News Hour a couple of weeks ago, and there was an interesting comment by Tom McClellan, 
the MC oscillator guy, and he looks at cycles, and he's pretty good. And what was interesting about what he had to say was he was basically calling for a market top in November. And that ultimately he was saying that you want to sell into the strength of October and as it comes down in November. And so he's all in, as he was saying two weeks ago, but that's what he was looking to do. So just an interesting little thought there, a little nugget to share with you as we try and assess what is actually happening out there. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host this podcast and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have a story on miners and committing to net zero emissions. World's largest miners commit to net zero emissions by 2050. Now, that doesn't seem like a huge commitment to me, uh, just off the top of it. We may all be net zero by 2050, but I guess it is progress. This is by Alicia Hyatt. She is the editor-in-chief of Canadian Mining Journal, and it says here, a group of the world's biggest mining companies have pledged to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 or sooner, in line with the goals outlined in the Paris Agreement designed to combat global warming. The International Council on Mining and Metals, 28 company members include Rio Tinto, BHP, Barrick Gold, Ballet, Tech Resources, and others, as well as 35 regional and commodities associations. Together, ICMM members represent one-third of the global mining metals industry, including more than 650 sites in over 50 countries. And we have a quote from Roitesh Dawan, CEO of ICMM, quote, as the suppliers of the minerals and metals that are critical to decarbonization and sustainable development, we have a particular responsibility to minimize the impact of our operations on the environment. ICMM members' collective commitment to net zero scope one and two GHG emissions by 2050 is a pivotal moment in our history. You know, not to be skeptical here, but... Like, I think the majority of the International Council on Mining and Metals, I'll be surprised if they live to 2050. So they're making some big commitment, which is actually not a big commitment, in my opinion. And they are for someone else to do. I mean, it doesn't sound like, you know, this is, to me, not to be skeptical here, but this is inaction being disguised as action from what I see here. But let's continue reading. Although this commitment, and it's not even scope three, although the commitment is limited to scope one and scope two emissions, ICMM companies are, have pledged to accelerate action on scope three targets, like to 2100, quote, as soon as possible. So that's no commitment at all, as soon as possible. As soon as possible could be in 2300. Not to be skeptical. You know, I think it's great that people are thinking about this, but this is not a commitment, in my opinion. 2050. We're in 2021, October. So in 29 years, we will be net zero. Like, I don't know who crafted this document. And maybe I'm the one who's, you know, maybe I'm the one who's out to lunch. And maybe some people think this is too aggressive. Now, there is more here. Many of ICMM members have already laid out their plans to reach net zero emissions by 2050, while some companies' targets are more ambitious, including Anglo-Americans, ICMM says individual members' approach to setting and meeting targets will be consistent. 
By the end of 2023, in two years and three months, all ICMM members have committed to the following, building clear pathways to achieve a net zero scope one and two GHG emissions by 2050 or sooner through meaningful short and or medium term targets. So basically, we're going to take 15 months to make a plan because we haven't thought of one yet. We're going to accelerate action on scope three GHG emissions, which depends on the combined efforts of producers, suppliers, and customers. ICMM members have agreed to take a leadership role to overcome these barriers and advance partnerships so that credible targets can be set and emissions across value chains can be reduced. Now, I understand scope three to me is very controversial, scope three emissions. Scope three emissions, if you don't know, are downstream emissions outside of the company's control. In other words, if Rio Tinto creates some iron ore and I have a company that manufactures and builds using iron ore, the emissions that I let off as, as a manufacturer are considered scope three. And so one could argue that is outside of Rio Tinto's control. So scope three is controversial without question. But I mean, yeah, accelerating action. I mean, do you need to make an announcement that you're going to be accelerating action? And I'm just based purely on consistency. If these guys are going to come out in favor of, you know, doing something about climate change, if they think it's doing something, which they say they do, and I agree with them, frankly, but that doesn't matter what I think, they're saying that. So if they actually think that their emissions, which are significant, are hurting the planet, which is consistent with what they are saying, to me, 2050 is ridiculous, to be just perfectly frank on that. It's kind of ridiculous. That's kind of my take on this so-called announcement. But hey, maybe I'm reading it wrong. Let's continue. U.S. narrows gap with China in race to dominate battery supply chain, according to a report by Bloomberg NEF, and this is by Valentina Ruiz Leotode, the United States is narrowing the gap with China when it comes to the race to dominate the battery value chain, according to Bloomberg NEF's second annual global lithium-ion battery supply chain ranking. According to the strategic research provider, the U.S. has moved up the ranking to the second spot in 2021. As a country, the U.S. has the second largest EV market globally after China. Tesla and Asian cell manufacturers continue to make significant investments in the country and the Biden administration's policy to help establish a domestic battery supply chain and support EV growth will further strengthen the country's position, end quote. In the view of BNEF's experts, the U.S. has many ingredients needed to foster a domestic lithium-ion battery value chain. But in the past, companies like Tesla have had to forge a path by themselves. Now that there is policy support in place, however, there seems to be a coordinated effort from companies across the supply chain to anchor more value within the country. But even as the U.S. makes considerable strides to build and strengthen its domestic battery supply chain, China continues to dominate the ranking throughout the period thanks to continued investment and strong local and global demand for its lithium-ion batteries. BNEF's data shows that China hosts 80% of all battery cell manufacturing capacity today, with capacity expected to more than double to over 2 terawatt hours, enough capacity for more than 20 million electric vehicles in the next five years. Yet, as governments around the world recognize the strategic importance of the battery industry, Local supply chains are emerging to challenge China's dominance. And it says here that Europe is also making progress. Bloomberg NEF's research also shows that European countries are rising up the ranking as passenger EV sales steadily grow, attracting more investment in the supply chain. 
Nordic countries seem to be leading the way as their low-carbon power supplies makes them attractive to environmentally conscious companies. Quote, Finland will soon be home to one of the world's largest refineries for nickel and cobalt sulfate, both key ingredients for use in EV batteries. Battery material producers Umicor and BASF have also both invested in the country. Later in 2021, batteries are expected to roll off the production line from the first European-owned gigawatt-hour scale cell plant when Northvolt commissions its Sweden facility. And finally here, the document notes that even though European countries are ranked individually, the ability for tariff-free trade between countries in Europe means that as a continent, its battery demand is second only to China. At the same time, if ranking Europe as a whole, it comes first in the supply chain ranking in 2021 and 2026. That's impressive. That almost sounds wrong. If ranking Europe as a whole, it comes first in the supply chain ranking in 2021 and 2026. Quote, Europe has set the ambitious goal of supplying all of its own battery demand for the region by 2025 and has committed billions of euros in state aid to attract investments in the battery supply chain. We are now starting to see the results of this effort, Cecilia Lecluz, energy storage analyst at BNEF, writes in the report. And this is the thing. This is why I think being overly ideological about markets and capitalism and saying, no, we can't have any public sector investment and that somehow is corrupting capitalism. Like, look at what's going on here. I mean, yeah, maybe if everybody is playing by the same rules that, okay, we're all going to have no subsidies, but if we're going to have subsidized industries in Europe and in China, then I don't see what North America, it, I don't see them having any choice but to do the same thing. And having this idea that somehow we're going to wait for investors to save us, I don't see that. Uh, you know. But anyway, continuing on, individually, Finland has managed to move up the rankings, which is unusual given that most resource-rich countries tend to rank lower in the supply chain ranking, as they generally lack a domestic battery supply chain and battery demand. So another lesson here for Canada, which is instead of just producing the commodities, build the supply chain. And frankly, you have GM there in Ontario. I believe they're still there. Like you have the auto manufacturers. Uh, I, I don't think you have a choice, frankly, like build the supply chain, serve the batteries to the people in Ontario. This is what China is doing. They don't want to sell us batteries. They don't want to sell us lithium. They want to sell us cars. They don't, they don't probably even want to sell us batteries. They want the batteries. They want to sell us cars. So on and on it goes. Thank you, Valentina. And continuing on, we have a nickel forecast from the International Study Group, and they are predicting rising nickel demand in 2022. It's by Daniel Sekulich, and it says here global primary nickel demand will rise by 2.8 million tons this year and to 3 million tons next year, up from 2020's 2.4 million tons, according to the International Nickel Study Group. The increase is being driven in part by the acceleration of COVID-19 vaccine rollouts and the continued recovery of economies worldwide. Meanwhile, primary nickel production is forecast to hit 2.6 million tons this year and 3.1 million tons next year, resulting in a projected nickel deficit of 134,000 tons this year and a surplus of 76,000 tons in 2022. The group cautions, however, that there is a degree of uncertainty in its figures and warn that its estimates do not factor in possible production disruptions in China and Indonesia. Exports of unprocessed nickel ore from Indonesia, the world's top nickel miner, seized in January 2020 due to a government-imposed ban. The move has meant that China has less nickel ore to feed its nickel-pig iron sector, resulting in decreased end nickel 
pig iron production in the country. So higher nickel demand is being forecast. Continuing on, Friedland-backed Ivanhoe Electric funds South Boise's Bay Survey. So it's always interesting to see what Robert Friedland is up to. This is by Henry Lazenby. Mining magnate Robert Friedland is looking to make another potentially massive base metals discovery about 80 kilometers south of his famous Boise's Bay find from 1993. His privately held U.S.-based firm, Ivanhoe Electric, has put up funding to conduct a low-temperature superconducting quantum interference device, also known as a SQUID, moving loop transient electromagnetic survey on the South Boise's Bay Nickel-Copper-Cobalt project in Labrador, Canada. The survey is being conducted by Discovery International Geophysics, headquartered in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, my hometown. The technology has been successfully applied in finding and expanding nickel deposits in Western Australia. In Canada, during the year, BHP Midland and Wailu Metals Orford have also announced squid surveys on their nickel projects in northern Quebec. So Robert Friedland making a couple of moves. I think he also did something near the Kamoa site in Congo. I remember a friend of mine was calling it closology, where you look for deposits near other deposits. And a couple of headlines here. Weir Group cuts profit guidance following crippling cyber attack. So this is also by Henry Lazenby. Industrial pump maker Weir Group is reeling following a sophisticated cyber attack in the second half of September that forced it to isolate and shut down its core IT systems, including enterprise resource planning and engineering application. Yeah, so their profits took a hit. And this is just a common story now. I mean, you hear it anecdotally. You hear it all the time of hacked servers. So companies really need to be on guard. And finally, De Beers sells first traceable diamonds under Gemfair. It's by Cecilia Jamasmi. Anglo-Americans De Beers, the world's largest rough diamond producer by value, has sold the first roughs produced under the Gemfair program, aimed at removing conflict diamonds from the market by tracing the root of precious stones dug up by artisanal and small-scale miners. So I think this is just going to become more and more common. The company said several ethically sourced traceable diamonds from prospectors in Sierra Leone were available at the auction in Singapore. All gem quality diamonds, the largest being an 11 karat rock, found their buyers, De Beers said. You know, it's just increased status on the diamond, I think. Like, it kind of adds value, doesn't it? It kind of makes it a little more collectible. Since beginning as a pilot in 2018 with 14 registered ASM sites, Gemfair has expanded to nearly 200 mining areas participating in the program. And finally, we have a statement from Steve Allen, head of Gemfair. Quote, we've been focused on bringing beautiful, traceable, ethically sourced ASM diamonds to market and to demonstrate that buying diamonds from artisanal and small-scale miners in a responsible way is the right thing to do and has the potential to be transformative for the sector. So, making progress in the diamond sector. So those are your headlines. Now let's take a look at metal prices. The 10-year bond, according to CNBC, is trading at 1.601%. That is 0.08% higher than last week. And turning to our precious metals, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. Gold is trading at $1,759.61 per ounce. That is a dollar lower than last week, so not much movement in gold. Silver is unchanged at $22.61 per ounce. 
Platinum is at $1,015.72. That is $49 higher than last week. And Palladium is back above $2,000 at $2,099.35 per ounce. That is a significant jump. It is $184 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is six cents higher at $4.19. Aluminum is two cents higher at $1.32 per pound. Lead is back above a dollar at $1.02 per pound. And nickel is at $8.56 per pound. That is 34 cents higher than last week. Tin is at $16.75 per pound. That is 60 cents higher than last week. And cobalt is at $24.02 per pound. That is a penny lower. And zinc is back above a buck 40 at $1.41 per pound. That is 5 cents higher than last week. What do we see? Well, almost nothing in the precious metals other than platinum and palladium, which have ticked higher. And as far as industrial metals are concerned, really, they persist at elevated prices. I mean, nothing really stands out too much. I mean, tin is starting to get quite strong again, and zinc as well. You know, tin at sixteen seventy-five and zinc at a dollar forty-one. Those are starting to get quite strong again, and those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Katja Freitag, Managing Director of Mining Intelligence, and she's interviewed by Northern Miner publisher Anthony Vaccaro at the Global Mining Symposium just a couple of weeks ago. And Katja has a diverse, multifaceted understanding of the mining industry developed over 20 years. Since completing her PhD in geology, Katja has worked at mining operations in North America and Africa, consulted at a Tier 1 management consulting firm, and managed two divisions at a mining services provider. And Anthony goes more in depth into her bio. So with that, I hope you enjoyed the interview and I will see you on the other side. We all know how important data is, but do we know how to use it most effectively? And what are the tools that can really help you get on top of data for this industry? So you can really decide whether you're looking at it through an investment lens or you're looking at it through a supplier's lens in terms of which companies are are moving and which parts of the world. There's so many ways that the mining intelligence database can assist in business decisions. It is a global database. It has so much in it that it actually boggles my mind. <laughs> I go in there and play with it quite a bit. It helps me out a lot and it just there's just new things to find in there all of the time. So we are going to be joined by Katja Fritek. Katja is the head of mining intelligence. She's a geologist who has worked in various roles in the mining industry over the last 25 years. She joined InfoMine, which became part of our Glacier Resource Innovation Group in 2019. She joined as a regional manager in their South Africa office in 2011, and she moved to Canada to manage the EduMine division in 2013 and then 2018 on leadership of mining intelligence. Before joining our group, Katja spent five years in McKinsey's metals and mining team as a mining specialist and a consultant. During this time, she honed her analytical skills and learned to love Excel. She also spent three years at Palabora Mining Company in South Africa, enjoying life underground, where she started in rock mechanics and then shifted to become a secondary blasting drill rig operator for a few months. How cool does that sound? Before working as an underground production engineer. 
She has her master's degree in geology from the Technical University of Klausna in Germany, and she has her PhD from Colorado School of Mines in the USA. And most importantly, she's a mother of two happy preteens. <laughs> Hello, Katja. How are you? It's great to see you. <laughs> Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, it's good to uh, get this opportunity to chat a little bit about mining intelligence. When I listened to that intro, data has followed me through my whole life. And um, for sure, it is an important thing to be able to just understand what's happening and and also um, make some informed decisions. So I'm very proud to be part of Mining Intelligence and to head up this incredible database of companies, mining companies, owners of mines and properties, and then all the assets that go with it. Yeah, and the asset data here is really a, one of the big competitive advantages of Mining Intelligence. That asset level data is so strong. Maybe we'll start there, uh, Katja, in terms of where the data is coming from. That's always such an important consideration for our audience. So how is this data being gathered? What is it a set of? It really is a data operation. It isn't just randomly looking for data. We have a setup where we get feeds from stock exchanges that come in every day automatically. They, they sit there until they're analyzed. And we also hunt for a lot of documents. We have a, a dedicated team that is global. So we have team members in India, the Philippines, and my right-hand lady, Claudia, sits here in Vancouver. And each team is dedicated to a certain aspect of that data gathering. So the source are all these documents, mainly stock exchange feed documents, but also um, what we call manually uploaded into our system. They get tagged and then they get put into these backlogs. So if there's a capital raising news release, it goes into a capital raisings backlog and there's a dedicated team that, that handles that. So it's, it's a very, very smooth operation. I respect these analysts hugely. I sometimes look at the data myself and to do that every day for the convenience of the clients is just really such a godsend that we have this team that is so excited about what they do. It is quite challenging working with a global team because of time zones. Philippines is slightly easier from Vancouver than, uh, than India, but we meet once a month and it is always great to chat to these young analysts. From my perspective, young analysts, they probably think they, they're pretty old already. And um, hear about all the ideas that they have to just improve how that data is captured. Because one of the things when, when you're running a data operation is obviously errors always creep in. It's almost impossible not to, to bring in errors. And so we're continuously looking for ways to, to make sure that those errors are limited as much as possible. I think it's important too to, to point out that the Philippines team are geologists. So the, the people, your That's geologist, right. Claudia, so you have people that really understand this, this data coming in. And the team in India are all professionals as well, not necessarily geologists, but professionals and, and very strong. There's right. quite a few MBAs in the India team, which is uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what does it mean to the client though? What are some of the best use cases that you're hearing from the clients about why they love this product? I mean, I imagine efficiency, time savings have to be huge on this. Having data available when you need it, downloadable into Excel, granular data is, is very valuable. We have 
a variety of clients with different different needs. We have government organizations. We have a lot of suppliers that are trying to do business development, identify prospects to sell their products to. We also have some boutique financial investment groups that are also looking for opportunities, but obviously different ones. I think the huge value is having that data when you need it. And I remember my five years of working at McKinsey, very data-driven uh, analyses were done there. And we, we were actually on company websites looking for the data. Yeah. We also subscribed, obviously, to uh, data providers at the time. That was a couple of years back. But still, there's a lot of legwork that needs to happen before you can even get going with your analyses. So having that when you need it, I would say is it's almost like you can't put a value on that. It is it is so so big. The other thing that I I find we provide to our customers is if they do have questions, we really want to work with our customers. So there's a huge value if a customer is interested in a, something very specific area or commodity and they can't find what they're looking for, we will do some digging. And that is also value. You don't need to do it yourself. You just ask us. You know, for to, for people to wrap their heads around this as well, one way, because there's just so much data there. I mean, there's capital <laughs> raising, there's resources and reserves, there's royalties, there's pretty much any factor that you can think of that's relevant in the mining industry. Mining intelligence has it on a global scale. But one way to kind of make it very tangible for people, on mining.com, we do your generating top 10 lists for people. And actually what's... A lot of top 10 lists out there. Kitco, I know, does them. Kitco's are not nearly on this level. Let's just be really, really clear. Just having a top 10 list of a company, okay, fine, that's nice. There's value in that. But when you're doing these top 10s for mining.com, which are available for download, they're actual spreadsheets, and they're actually giving really detailed information about these companies. So I'd encourage anyone to go to mining.com, search top 10. We also put them up on the Northern Miner because they are such high value, and you'll see how this data can be sliced and diced. You want to maybe highlight some of the some of the topics of the top 10s just so people can get a sense of how this data can have utility. So we had some top 10 top 10s by property by commodity earlier this year. Top 10 biggest copper projects, top 10 biggest gold projects. We use reserves resources for that measured and indicated. We normally don't include the inferred ones because it just that, that's just too wild still. And Recently, we did producers, top 10 copper producers. We're about to release the nickel producers. I think we had gold producers. One thing just to, to note with the top 10 companies or the data we have for top 10 companies, we gather the data at property level for production or reserves. We do not capture what the, the company reports as their total. It really is aggregated up from from the baseline data, which is at property level using the ownership. So sometimes our customers say, but you know, I see a different number reported. And that is normally due to rounding. Uh, the company will round it up. We do it from asset up. And maybe can we, we can hit upon who are some of the clients? What are some of the names that people would recognize? Who, who is using this database currently? So we have the USGS. They've recently signed on. Um, we were pretty excited about that. The CIA as well. So we have some big government organizations using the data. We have... Um, I take it the CIA doesn't reveal to you what they're using it for. No, exactly. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. We have a couple of, of universities, Stockholm uh, School of Economics and Hong Kong University, University of Hong Kong. Uh, they're doing some interesting research projects. And that, that's also nice for us to just 
be in touch with what research is happening out there. And it's it's normally not kind of the geology research. It's normally from an economic or financial point of view. We also have a couple of uh, boutique investment and financial firms. I can't rattle those off uh, right now. We have Kirkland Lake Gold. They've started using our data as well. And then we have numerous suppliers from small kind of very niche product suppliers to drilling companies, et cetera, service providers, drilling companies. So it really is a, a wide range. The one thing that is nice with the mining intelligence product that we offer is that customers don't need all that data all the time. So we have a modular offering. If there is something that's not required, customers aren't going to have to pay for it. So we can tailor that view of the access of the data, depending on what those needs are. And that's a critical point because the big competitor out there does not allow for that. And that is one of the biggest complaints that you hear paying for a really high price for a lot of data you never even use. So I think that very intelligently gets around uh, that complaint with a lot of big global data mining systems. I shouldn't say a lot because there's not many in the world. <laughs> and, this <is> one, <laughs> and this one allows modular access to it, which is very powerful. We're running out of time here, Katja, but importantly, mm. uh, the group has been investing in mining intelligence, something we all believe very, very strongly in. Can you maybe talk about any new features or new developments? Yeah, it is It is an exciting time to be with mining intelligence. We um, beefed up the team a little bit in India. We were curating drill results for a while, for two years or something, and we, we had to stop that last year. We did a big restructure, and we've just started um, that again with this expanded team. That is very exciting. The drill results come in, they're analyzed as they come in within 24 hours. We're also doing an interesting additional company level data point, which is differentiating the actual mining companies from royalty and streaming companies, metals and mining companies, et cetera. What I've found, because I, I use the data a lot myself, I do a lot of analyses too. And sometimes you think you're looking at a mining company, but it isn't actually. It's just an owner that is not directly in, related to, to that actual activity of mining, it'll be a huge value for our customers to actually be able to know which are the mining companies within the mix of owners of all these properties. Well, you and your team are doing a fantastic job. Our media brands are using more and more of this data as well and being able to provide great insights to our subscribers. So we thank you for your, your diligence on that. And we encourage any of our listeners, reach out. Thank you so much, Katja. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you. And there you have it, another piece of the puzzle as we continue to survey this unique mining industry. And there's lots to look forward to in the coming weeks. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care. <laughs>